Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. This is uh, Sanctity of Life Month. And this weekend, or within this past week, there was a March for Life, as there always is in Washington, D.C. Estimated numbers between 50,000, upwards of 100,000, marching in the frigid temperatures of Washington, D.C. We normally have a representative to come and speak on behalf of Life Choices, which is one of the agencies that we support as a church, a pro-life agency that has clinics in four different counties in Western Pennsylvania, working to get women to choose life for their unborn child. And uh, I'm not going to preach a sermon on that today, but I wanted to highlight this this morning, that there have been over 62 million babies on record aborted since Roe v. Wade was enacted in law in 1973. That's, as, that's longer than I've been alive. And in, I think it's an atrocity. And I, I, North Main is unabashedly a pro-life church. Amen. And, and I, I don't say that to criticize anyone who has made the choice to abort a child. Please understand, it's not a lack of mercy on our part. If you've done that and you've, you've now come to this place where it has racked you to your core, there is still hope beyond that decision. And so one of the things that Life Choices does is also offer post-abortive counseling as well for those who made the decision but now have come to this point where it's, they, they truly regret it because it has is, it is compounded the problem they thought they had and made it into this ugly beast that has destroyed their lives. And so my hope and my prayer for this church is that we would continue to be advocates of mercy and grace for people that have made decisions that have led them to do this, but pray for them in a sense to help them find healing, but also to be preventative in those that find themselves truly in a crisis pregnancy to help them choose life. Um, Those of you that are watching online as well, we welcome you. And it looks very positive these days for the pro-life agenda. Supreme Court is going to be looking at a case that will determine, in essence, what abortion looks like from this point forward in our nation. I'm praying and hoping that the Supreme Court votes and decides for life rather than the other way. Okay? All right. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know we've hit a myriad of different topics, but the main thing we're discussing this year is patience. How many of you could use more patience? Okay, right? And you know the old adage, growing up in church, I was always told, you never pray for patience. Because if you pray for patience, God's going to test you to see if you really want it. And patience doesn't come 
just like that. Patience is something that truly has to go through the rigors and the fires of trial in order to make you stronger. And so, as we've looked at Scripture already this year, we're going to be looking at Scripture from Genesis to Revelation over the course of this year through the lens of this theme, or as we call the fruit of the Spirit, patience. And so today, we come to the story of Cain and Abel. Yes, I've addressed the story of Cain and Abel in the past, but I want you to look at it with me today through a fresh set of lenses as we look at divine patience, not the patience of Cain or Abel or anybody else in the story with exception of God and God alone. How is God patient and long-suffering in this regard? If you remember last week when it says that God is slow to anger, We learned through the video that we showed you that that slow to anger phrase in Hebrew means long-nosed. If you were quick to anger, you are hot-nosed or short-nosed. Why is that? Or or you are red-nosed. Because when you get angry, what tends to happen to your face? You see, you see red, you get red, and the intensity of the redness oftentimes is around the nose area. And so in Hebrew, when they said that you were quick-tempered, you were red-nosed or short-nosed, right? If you had a long nose, slow to anger is how it's translated in English. If you were long-nosed, you weren't Pinocchio, Instead, it meant that it took a while for your nose to get red because it was so long. You were long-suffering. You were slow to anger. You were patient. And so we're going to look at how God, in the context of Cain and Abel, was slow to anger. Let me ask you this question. How merciful are you? How, d- does mercy rank as one of your top spiritual gifts? When I take, I've taken spiritual gifts since I was a teenager. Those spiritual gifts inventories and tests you get in churches, any number of spiritual gifts tests. And mine have fluctuated through the years, but predominantly I have a core set that are always in my top five. Guess which one is not there? <laughs> mercy. And I'm not bragging about that. I'm not like, yeah, I'm not merciful. Mic drop. I'm not like that. No, it's not something I'm proud about that I wear a shirt that says, hey, I'm not merciful, you're horrible, or something like that. I'm not okay with that. Hospitality, and every pastor should be hospitable, but I'm not, and I'm not proud of it either. Those two rank, I'm not joking, on the very bottom of the scale. But I digress. How merciful are you? I'm one of those people who watches a movie and the bad guy seems to be winning, but then when the hero comes out of nowhere and just totally takes them out, you go, woohoo, right? <laughs> Sorry, you just saw my belly. <laughs> um, but should I, should I be that way? Yes, it's good to see justice arise. But as a believer in Christ, 
If I am to love my enemy and to pray for them, should I want them to go to hell? Or in the superhero fashion of Marvel and Thanos getting wiped out of existence. I'm sorry, I'm just being nerdy at the moment. But you know what I'm talking about. When the good guy gets the bad guy, we all, I mean, have you sat in a theater before and it's been so intense, but then boom, the bad guy gets it and everybody breaks out in cheers? Should we be that way as the church? Should we be okay with the bad guy getting plowed over? Everything I read in Jesus' teaching seems to point the other direction. Are you familiar with the parable of uh, the workers? Some start early in the day. Some come midday. Some come toward the middle afternoon, and some come like, I don't know, like an hour before closing time. (laughs) And at the end of all of that, when the owner of the business, the boss, is doling out the money for a day's work, how much does everybody get? They get the same. Whoa. That's not how our movies go. Actually, that's how our bad movies go. Right? That sounds like communism or socialism or any number of isms you want to put on the end of that. But in God's kingdom and in God's economy, which is so counter to the cultures of this world and the kingdoms of this world, God doesn't have to give anybody anything. Why? Because we know that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. Do any of us deserve anything? So it's just by the sheer grace and mercy of God that any of us get anything that is of good quality. Should I want the bad guy to get it? It's not something we like to hear, especially in our culture that is so ultra-polarized right now because of politics or medicine or any number of things. And I'm not going to get on, a, I'm not gonna get on a, a soapbox about my opinions on this because it could be used as more divisiveness. But the reality is if you can pull yourself out of the polarization of all of the junk that is in society and culture right now and look at things with a fresh perspective from Jesus' perspective, you might see things a little differently. It's not about vaxxed versus unvaxxed, Democrat versus Republican. And I'm not saying Christians should bury themselves in a hole and not be active in society pushing for the godly things. What I am saying is we should not be arguing from one of these two sides because the argument is different in God's economy. So as we look at divine patience, I want us to get a glimpse of this God whom we love and who loves us And I want you to see him with a fresh set of eyes. This God of the Old Testament that we chalk up as being this wrathful, mean, vindictive, and hateful God that is nothing but a God of judgment. I want you to see that he's actually a loving, caring, forgiving, merciful, and gracious God in the Old Testament just as much as he is in the New Testament through Christ. So let's look at Cain and Abel, Genesis chapter 4, starting with verse 1. 
Now, if you are under the age of 13, plug your ears because this, this first line is kind of weird. No, is that verse 1? Now, I'm missing verse 1. Yes, I am. I am missing verse 1. Well, here's how it reads. Now Adam, and Ad, now Adam had sexual relations with his wife. Ooh. We don't talk about that in the church. That's icky. Uh, anyway, Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. And she gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. I have produced a man. Sorry, I'm just getting back to my roots. With the Lord's help, I have produced a man. And later it says she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the first fruit of his lambs from his flock. Well, the Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. And this made Cain very angry and he looked dejected. All right, let's stop for a second. Was that fair of God to do that? It doesn't seem right, does it? Scholars have debated this specific section of Scripture for centuries, trying to figure out why did God reject Cain but accept Abel's gift. There's been a lot of the, the, theologizing. There's been a lot of trying to unpack this and, and give meaning to this. Um, Suffice it, I have my own theories on this based on what I read there, and I'll give those to you in a moment from my perspective, and they are Brandon's perspective. Keep that in mind. But when push comes to shove, is God allowed to give somebody something and to reject something from somebody else? Why? Exactly. He is allowed because he's God. Now, you can say, well, that's not fair. But if we believe about God, if what we believe about God is that, as Scripture tells us, he is good, he is holy, he is righteous, and the one thing that really defines who he is in 1 John, he tells us that God is love, then we have to understand that there may be reasons beyond our comprehension for the reason he, he accepts something but rejects another. Okay? And we may not have every piece to the puzzle we would like to know about every given situation. And so then we're left to do one of two things. To either trust that truly God is good and loving and that he has his reasons for things we don't often understand or see when it becomes, in, in issues like death of a loved one, an untimely death of a loved one, all of these different types of things, yes? Or we can reject God, as many have done, and say, if that's the way God is, I don't want to serve that kind of God. And then in that huge vacuum of a place in your soul that is only reserved for God, guess what happens? You become God. Or 
Whatever you desire most becomes God in your life. And that is what rules you. So Cain and Abel, God accepts Abel's gift, but he doesn't accept Cain's gift. And this made Cain angry, as probably it would do for any one of us. And it says he looked dejected. Have you ever looked dejected before? A couple times. So God comes to Cain and he says, why are you so angry? Why are you so angry, the Lord asked. Why do you look so dejected? And Cain says, are you kidding me? No, he doesn't say that. I probably would have. I'm sorry, why do I look dejected? Why am I angry? You tell me. You rejected my gift. I didn't have to bring you anything. Why are you so angry? Why do you look so dejected? And here's the kicker. Because we might see this as rubbing salt in the wound. Okay? Hear what he says. Hear what God says. You will be accepted if you do what's right. But if you refuse to do what's right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. So it says a little time later, one day later, or one day, Cain suggested to his brother, Hey, buddy. Hey, big shooter. Little bro. Let's go out in the field. You know, I want you to see the crops I'm planting. (laughs) Come on, let's go. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and killed him. We don't know how. Oftentimes in movies and different things, it's depicted that he took a rock and smashed him over the head. We don't know how he killed him. We do know he took his life. Afterward, the Lord said, or asked Cain, where's your brother? Where's Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? Or some versions say, am I my brother's keeper? Then the Lord said, what have you done? What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you're cursed and you're banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield crops for you. No matter how hard you work, from now on you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. What did God say to Adam just a chapter before in Genesis 3, whenever they had fallen from God's grace by eating the tree, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You will work by the sweat and toil, or you will work by sweat and toil to to make a living from the ground from which you came, but it will produce thistles and thorns for you. And now, what does God say to Cain will happen? Nothing will be produced for you. What was uh, Cain's profession? A farmer of the ground. God stripped from him the possibility and hope of a livelihood from that, which was the most common thing to him, working the ground. 
From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. And then Cain replied to the Lord, my punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land and from your presence. You've made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord replied, no, for I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So there's a couple things you're probably wondering, and I don't want to just skim over them, but it's not the content or the focus of the sermon today. It's like, who's going to kill Cain? Right? But how long did Adam live? 930 years. Okay? We don't know where in the story this is. We aren't told that there weren't girls. They don't calculate girls in the genealogies. I'm sorry, ladies. Chances are they had other children. And as Cain grew and the earth became populated, it's a possibility, knowing the family history, that they would have had it out for Cain who became the wanderer. And if they came upon him any time later in the world, there's that killer and would have killed him too. But that's not the point. Just a side note. We'll save that subject for another time. What's the key point I want you to take away this morning? It's this. God's mercy shows his patience toward us even when we don't deserve it. And how does this happen? There are two points this morning. The first one is God's warning was an act of mercy for Cain. Do you understand that? God's mercy was an act of warning. Excuse me. God's warning was an act of mercy for Cain. Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what's right. But if you refuse to do what's right, watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Where there is no warning or rebuke, there is no compassion or mercy. Let me say that again. Where there is no warning or rebuke, there is no compassion or mercy. If God didn't care about Cain, why would he have warned him in the first place? Do you catch where this is going? Oftentimes when we, as parents, rebuke or warn our children and they roll their eyes and get really frustrated with us, they don't realize that our warning and our rebuke and our correction of them is because we love them and want to see them become better than they are. Why can't we attribute those same characteristics to God who loves us beyond what we could ever love our own children or ourselves? That he is that compassionate and merciful to us. If God truly was an ogre sitting up in heaven waiting to zap any one of us when we do wrong, then he would just sit there like this waiting for us to mess up. And I know some people have that perspective of God, which is such a skewed and perverse perspective of a God of love and mercy that the Bible talks about. Again, I mentioned last week, when you read Scripture, especially the Old Testament, you can go from one verse to the next and a century can pass. 
You don't realize often that when you're reading the word, that it is very condensed because the, uh, multiple volumes couldn't contain every detail and every aspect of everything that happened in those situations. And so the writers and the authors of the word of God will oftentimes give you the gist of an issue or the situation and sometimes skip over to the next generation or maybe the next generation. And what we fail to see is that the God of judgment in the Old Testament has given generation after generation time to repent and come to know him intimately. So then when God commands that cities be burnt or that the Israelites succumb to the authority of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, or any number of people all the way up to the Romans during Jesus' day and age, we only see a God who's just heavy-handed and unmerciful when in actuality you have centuries of time where God was trying to woo them and warn them through the prophets through miracles and wonders and signs. And they continue to snub their nose at him and reject him to the point where he says, fine. I am slow to anger, but my anger has a limit. And my anger is not like human anger. God's anger is turning us over to exactly what we want and the consequences that come with it. So, how was God's warning an act of compassion and mercy and patience and love to Cain? We may question the purpose for God's rejection of Cain's gift. And I want to get back to this. I told you I'd come back around to this. Is why, why was he angry and dejected? Well, God says if you do what's right, it'll go well with you. You'll be fine. I want you to go back with me a little bit to the verses there. It says, when Cain brought his gift and Abel brought his gift, what are some of the details of the verses there? So it says, Cain brought some from his, from his uh, uh, harvest, right? But it specifically states that Abel brought the best and the first fruits of his labor. Okay. Now what we see kind of mirrored in that when you get to Leviticus or Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, when you get beyond Genesis, you see the sacrificial system. You could not bring a diseased or a spotted lamb as a sacrifice. You had to bring a perfect spotless lamb. It had to be inspected by the priests before it was sacrificed. Now, this became a politically distressed system because they got into the monetization of selling this kind, these kinds of sacrifices at the temple. So if you brought a sacrifice and, and they wanted to make money, they would, say, they would reject the sacrifice you brought and say, but I have this lamb over here that you can purchase and use for your sacrifice for your family. So that got corrupt too, but again, another story for another time. But it had to be perfect and spotless. So now what is Abel doing? He's bringing the best and the first of what he has. What does that say to God? When you bring him the best and the first of what you have and not just a little bit of the leftovers. 
or some of your abundance. If God gets the best in the first, it shows where your loyalties lie. Now, it may seem somewhat innocuous because I think Cain wasn't wrong in bringing him a gift, but did he bring him the best that he could offer? Boy, that preaches today, doesn't it? Are you giving God some or the leftovers of what you have and what he's gifted and entrusted you with? Are you giving him the best and the first? Sad, but true. In our worship of God today, and I hear this as a pastor, and please don't think I'm trying to condemn or rebuke you, but in some sense, I guess it is a correction and rebuke that I hear often that I just don't have enough time, pastor. I mean, I've got this activity, that thing, this thing going, and it's not about you doing stuff for the church. I want you to understand that. Please, please don't mishear me. This isn't a guilt trip I'm trying to load on you for not serving at the church, but the reality is if what you are doing is serving yourself and others more than you're serving God, and you can serve God by serving others, don't mishear me, but if you are truly taking stock and looking at all that you're doing and everything that consumes the most of your time, where's the focus? And again, this isn't mean to, to uh, condemn you. I get it. I have three teenagers and a preteen. Life is chaos. All right? 100% understand it. But you pastor, you get paid to be here. We don't. You're okay. Okay. And there have been times that I'm like, even if it wasn't a paycheck, I still, I still would dedicate my life to this because it's a calling. And, and right, pastor, your calling's a little bit different than ours. This is something that God has called you to full time. Actually, yes, he has. And it is slightly different than what God's called you to. But do you think God partially calls you into salvation? Or do you think God partially calls you into his will? No, when he calls you, it's all or nothing. It's both feet in, not one foot in, not one toe in, not a crack of the door. It's a wide open door. God, you have all of me. Because if he can't have all of you, he won't have any of you. And please understand, that is it. I'm not trying to preach at you. This is something I have to wrestle with in my daily um, um, struggle in walk in salvation as well. Now, where do you go from there? What are you giving God? What did Cain give God? What did Abel give God? And were they different? Yes, they were different. This is Brandon's analogy and interpretation of this passage. And again, take it for what it's worth, because I said scholars have debated this for centuries, so I'm not going to tell you an answer that hasn't already been unpacked before. But I believe that this is the case here, is that Abel decided, I'm going to go through my whole flock, I'm going to, I'm going to, before I take anything for myself, I'm going to give God's, I'm going to give God the first and I'm going to give God the best. And Cain, as he had harvested his crops, just took a couple bundles or who knows how much he took, but he just grabbed some without even looking at it. It could have been diseased. It may have been, might have not been the greatest. It could have been the best. We don't know. But the intention behind it is, I don't know, let me, uh, let's grab this, load it onto this cart, we'll take it to God and offer it, as a, offer it to him. 
There is a difference. And what does God tell, what does God tell Cain as a warning? If you do what's right, you'll be accepted. But then he says, but beware, sin is crouching at the door. And it's waiting to devour you. But you need to master it. So the anger and the dejection, if unmet or undealt with, can become ugly. The Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde scenario in every one of us. Uncontrolled anger and wallowing in dejection and self-loathing and pity will lead to ugly stuff. I see it often. Oh, woe is me, stories. And I'm not saying there aren't legitimate seasons in life where you need godly counsel from men and women where you can unload your pities on. But if you live in the valley of pity and death... Guess what the result's going to be? Sin's crouching at your door, ready to devour you. See, God loves Cain enough to know what's hiding in his heart and that if it's not dealt with, it's going to come out in some adverse way that is destructive. Maybe not to anybody else, but at least to Cain it will be destructive. But we know what happened in Cain's situation. Jealousy and envy overrode his sensibilities because of not only his anger with God and God's rejection of his gift, but his anger toward his brother. You see, what happens is we can blame God and then we blame others when truly the issue is we have to take a deep, hard, long look at ourselves and get right before God before we look outside of ourselves. I mean, we saw this in Genesis 3. God comes to find Adam and Eve. And where do they go? They hear God coming and they duck out into the bushes to hide from God. And I think that's ironic, right? And isn't it ironic? All right. Sorry. Flashing back to the 90s or the early 2000s. All right. But they duck out and they sow fig leaves and then God finally comes to them and they jump out and here they are with fig leaves, you know, and God's like, dude, what's up? Actually, God knew what was up. He wanted them to admit it. You ever done that as a parent? Who ate the, who, who didn't take the garbage out? Well, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. I know it wasn't any of you. <laughs> Bad analogy. <laughs> but you get where I'm coming from. So God wants them to admit, hey, you know, we've, we've done something royally bad. We were naked and so we hid from you. God, well, who told you you were naked? Well, here's what happened. Eve speaks up. It's the serpent who deceived me to eating the fruit. And, or no, no, no. Adam says, oh, was it Adam or Eve first? I got to look back. Adam first, then Eve, then the serpent. Thank you. So God's, God, God comes and Adam's like, yeah, so the woman gave me some of that fruit. And Eve's like, yeah, well, the serpent gave me some of that fruit. The serpent didn't have anybody to go back on, so God starts his 
opening up of the punishments to come. I think it's interesting, as we looked last week, there was mercy on all of those, except for the serpent. There was mercy on Adam and Eve. And now God's extending that mercy to their fallen children who are stuck in the midst of sin. Be careful, Cain. Sin's crouching at your door. The first murder ever recorded is this murder. Thus, showing us the result of the forbidden fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat it, you will die. Well, they didn't die immediately, but murder came onto the scene through their progeny, Cain. And you know, one other final point here is that God marked Cain for protection. It's funny, when we're caught and found out, hey, Cain, where's your brother? I don't know. Who's, who am I? Am I, am I my brother's keeper? Well, technically, yes, you are. Because that's how God created us in the perfectness of the garden. He created us for one another to live in perfect relationship with each other. So that kind of a statement denotes sin in, the, in, in a person's life. It's not that you have to be all up in everybody's business, but we are called to be each other's keepers. We are to encourage, to exhort, to rebuke, to correct, but all in gentleness, as Paul tells us in his letters in the New Testament. He never comes out and says, lop somebody's head off with the Bible or take them out at the knees. He says to love them, be gentle with them. Yes, firm rebuke when necessary and correction, but we like to err on the side of just being encouraging and nice or just saying, if you don't have anything nice to say. But we forget sometimes that rebuke and correction, what doesn't feel nice or, or, or seem nice to say, can truly come from a place of compassion and love because you want to see somebody become better. Right? I, I think one of the reasons for the problems in our world is not only a veering away from God and a worship of him in our culture, but also because the church has decided well, we've been told we're hypocritical and judgmental and we're all this, that, and the other, so we're not going to, you know, play into that. And so we'll just cocoon ourselves off from society and mind our own businesses. And then what happens to the world around us? Instead of being light and salt in the world, we close off the light and the salt inside of buildings made by men and we only act Christian or Worship God in this context. What a shame. What a shame. But God marks Cain for protection. Another act of God's mercy. Cain, once he's figured out, once he's figured out, and now he has like this scarlet letter on him, he is marked by God. That mark can seem like a curse, or it can seem like a blessing. I guess it's all in how you look at it. Because that mark indicated to other people not only the sin that Cain had enacted, but also that if you touch him, it's going to be sevenfold worse for you. Isn't it paradoxical? Don't we see these types of paradoxes in Scripture all the time? 
See, this is why God's economy and God's kingdom is so much radically different than the rest of the world around us because we try to view God's kingdom through a lens of American society when truly God's kingdom is so much greater. It's greater than any economy, than any kingdom the world has ever known. And when we try to view it through our own specific lens and our own experiences, it sometimes feels and seems confusing. That's why when you become a believer in Christ, you in essence become a citizen of that kingdom. And a part of your living daily life is to seek God, to read the word, to pray and to grow in him, grow continually so that you become more and more a kingdom or a citizen of that kingdom rather than a citizen of the kingdom of this world so that when you look at the world around you you don't have to cheer when the bad guy who is also a human made in the image of God gets their comeuppance you can actually weep and say if they had only known but that doesn't make for good movie making does it you see movie the movie industry knows to work toward our baser instincts and our fallen nature to get those emotions stoked up. Do you know any of the the nine fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 are not emotions? Love is not, joy is not, peace is not. They're not emotions. They're accentuated by emotions, but they're rooted in something deeper than emotions. Emotions are created by God, but when emotions become the driving force in what we do, it becomes self-destructive and destructive in other places. This is why the last one, the fruit of the Spirit, self-control, is supposed to keep those things and the emotions in restraint. God places a mark on Cain because Cain is now worried. If people find me, they're going to kill me. Who would kill Cain? I mean, let's go back to that for a minute. Who would kill Cain? Those that personally were connected with the sin that were affected by that murder. And those that carried on that story throughout the course of their time. Listen to what Walter Brueggemann says. I'm going to conclude with this. Danger of death is mitigated in this scenario, but the future of crime is not terminated. Cain had a choice of embracing a brother preferred over him, but he yielded to the waiting rage that was crouching at his door. He picked his destiny for time to come. He is protected but far from home and without prospect of any kind of homecoming. So the settlement, he goes on to say, may be as troubled for Yahweh as it is for Cain. The story turns neither on murder, on the murder by Cain, nor the punishment by Yahweh, but upon the pathos, pathos here meaning despair of Cain and the movement of God in response to, God, uh, to Cain's despair and suffering. God has been met God, guilt has been met with judgment, but even the guilty one is met with surprising grace from God. I guess what I'm asking you to do this year is to pull the blinders off when you read Scripture. I want you to truly dig in, chew on the Word, and see God for who He really is. Don't read it as the Bible stories we learned growing up as kids, if you had that experience. Look at every perspective in the scenario and ask yourself, 
does God have to do this? Why did God do that? Why did this person do this? Why did that person do that? Begin to look at as many different scenarios as you can, even without knowing the cultural context of such an ancient piece of scripture. Because there is timeless truth, whether or not you know the historical perspective, that can come up out of that for you because human nature is timeless. Sin, we know what it's like when it's crouching at our door. We know the emotions of jealousy and anger and rage that can come up when we feel that somebody has been unjust to us. Or God, why did you allow this to happen to me? We have to understand that God truly is a God of mercy and love. And he gives us more than we ever, ever deserve. Well, let's say this. He doesn't give us what we deserve, but instead extends grace and covers that multitude of sin. It's been said that our life is like the dial of a clock. The hands are God's hands passing over and over again. The short hand of discipline and the long hand of mercy. Slowly and surely, the hand of discipline must pass, pass, and God speaks at each strike, but over and over passes the hand of mercy, showering down 60-fold of blessing for each stroke of discipline or trial. And both hands are fastened to one secure point, the great and unchanging heart of a God of love. As our worship team comes forward to close this out today, have you rejected God? because you feel like he's rejected you? Um, Have you decided against extending mercy because you feel that nobody has extended mercy to you? Or maybe you're like me and mercy just isn't, you, you feel like you have, uh, you have a reason because, well, I don't rank very high in mercy, so that means I don't have to be merciful. Actually, no, that's not what that means. It's one of the things that I struggle with. It's one of the things I know I should work on. And one of the things that I do try to diligently work on is being more merciful. And a way to do that is to humble myself and put myself at the submission of someone who desperately needs mercy. And it's not always the person who's gentle, mild, and meek. More often than not, it's the one who is vile, angry, and unapproachable. Can we, like Jesus and like God, extend a hand of mercy to others? Can we be the hands and the feet of Christ? Can we be the ones who extend that opportunity, knowing that we may get slapped in the face in rejection? As I always say, the altars are open. We've not gotten rid of them because they are a very important piece of what we do here. They are symbolic of leaving things that you don't need to be carrying here. As I always say, you can come to my right, your left. People will pray with you here. When you come to my right, your left, you're saying to our prayer team that works and prays with people, I need somebody to pray with me. If you come to my left, your right, 
That's a no-go zone. Nobody will come and hound you. You can pray and get things lined up between God and yourself. But again, as I say every week, don't leave here without being at least changed in some significant way, not by my teaching, but by the word of God that you just heard. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in this place, as we often pray, uh, our desire is that you are glorified. No one person on this stage, in this auditorium, anywhere in this facility, but you and you alone. For you are the God who saves, who loves, who rebukes, who corrects, but who also offers himself as a sacrifice for sin. To remind us of the mercy that you gave through the cross of Christ. Even when many of us spat upon you on your way to Golgotha, rejected you, sneered at you, called you names, even as we do today. When we get angry, frustrated, feel dejected, Remind us we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus if we are believers in Christ. We don't have to give in to the lies of the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, but rather we can live above the fray by humbly accepting not only your offering of mercy and grace through the cross of Christ as we believe in Jesus, but also by extending that grace and service to others. We love you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.